We're in this very important series in the life of our church. Uh, we think that we believe this series is setting up uh, the future of our church. Because we believe our ch- uh, the future of our church will be rooting ourselves in the city of San Francisco, collectively living into what we are calling a rule of life. And this is basically practices from the way of Jesus that we all agree to build our lives around together as a church community. Think of it as a doctrinal statement. Think of it like this. What a doctrinal statement is to a denominational church, a rule of life is to our church. Now, there's nothing against doctrinal statements at all. We have one, but they rarely teach us how to live the way of Jesus. So typically when you join a denominational church, like, do you believe these things? And have you been baptized and received the Lord uh, Jesus Christ as your Savior? And, and here are the doctrinal statements like, I believe these things, sign here, you're a member of our church. For us, it's like, do you live this way? We want to practice the way of Jesus, and we think this is really, really important. And this is how our church lives in San Francisco. And we believe that this is how Jesus wants us to pattern our lives around his teachings in this city. And so this is kind of our way of going, this is how you become a part of our church, that you slowly start introducing these ways of living into your life and live this way in San Francisco. Not that that you just attend reality, that's a different thing, but that you are living this way. So that's kind of what we're building. And we're gonna take years to do this. So by the end of the series, we're just introducing these, these like different parts of our rule of life. And hopefully we're gonna build these out through um, our discipleship courses that we're having coming up uh, this summer, uh, this spring and summer, and, uh, and way more teachings on this in the future. And so our hope is to build this out so that hopefully by the time our kids are like, you know, teenagers, it's built out and they're living this way. Um, that's the hope. So we have, uh, well, at least for Junie, we have a few years. So there you go. Um, okay. Um, we're calling this series Future Church. And each week, each week, we're looking at a challenge that we are facing in culture and then lay out a vision of the kind of alternative society we want to be as a community. And at the end of each teaching, we end with a practice from our rule of life to move us towards this vision. Today, we are looking at a community of justice and a culture of consumerism and materialism through the practice of generosity. Uh, three teachings, like every teaching, and one teaching. That's basically what we're doing. Uh, I want to start by reading 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 19, and then I'm going to read our generosity prayer again. And what you're going to notice is that our generosity prayer is basically taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, we always stand. We already read this today as a part of our liturgy, so you don't have to stand. But I want you to hear it after reading 1 Timothy. You're going to see that Oh, that's basically 1 Timothy. And we say it very often. Throughout pandemic, we said it every single week. And now we say it about an average of once a month. But let me read this text to you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. I'm going to read through verse 19. Verse 2. I'm going to skip down a bit. Actually, verse 3. So this is probably not on the screen. Sorry. Skip halfway through to verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. Let's start there. Verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise, does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ to godly teaching. They're conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world 
and we take nothing out of it. But we have, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, speaking to Timothy, a man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. This is still the context of generosity and materialism. Fight the good, good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides with us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And this way they will lay up for themselves a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of life that is truly life. This is our generosity prayer. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We bring nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. We who call Jesus Lord Devote ourselves to resisting greed, which plunges the human heart into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We are determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not the uncertainty of wealth. We desire to be rich in good deeds and willing to share all that we have, laying up for ourselves treasure that will not decay, but will shine in the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this giant section of First Timothy, and a lot of it having to do with what we do with our wealth. I pray that you would move us by the power of your spirit towards more generosity. We want to be like you, God. And I know whenever we talk about generosity, this is, this is the, 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 the teaching that is the easiest to convict people. Uh, I, I just pray for some, a deep, deep, deep place of, even as we're praying before service, a deep place of your presence and your intimacy and your warmth. So whatever we hear would come from this place of being in the beloved, being loved by you, secure in you, and you would just gently be able to tell us what you want to tell us, God. So would you season my speech with love? And you know, as I've wrestled with this, um, this is a message to me as well, one that I've, I've endeavored to try and live out of and I failed many, many times. Help us and give us grace, Lord, as we move by grace towards a life living, lived out like Jesus in the way of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I love um, serving at this church. It's been like one of, the joy, one of the joys of my life. And one of the things I love so much uh, about serving here is how this church is so full of young people with all sorts of passions, 
So we just get a lot of, we have had just so many young people and all of your great passions. And one of the deepest passions I've witnessed in our church from the beginning was a passion for justice. Our church has a deep passion for justice. Actually, it's hard to meet a millennial, especially one who lives in a city, who doesn't have an emotional resonance for social justice. And one who also doesn't share that emotional resonance with all kinds of people on their social media feeds, that sort of thing. <laughs> and it's all good stuff, mostly. And then 2020 happened. It was like pouring gasoline on all of this passion. We saw people from all ages and walks of life taken to the streets or to their walls to share how there needs to be this huge moment of racial reckoning and how we need to let justice flow in our time. And despite all the tension that 2020 brought with all of this conversation, it's been very good and very important. However, and I want to say this with both sensitivity, but also with a bit of sternness as well. At the same time, I've seen many who do not let their concern for social justice influence how they spend money on themselves or how they use their time or how and who they seek as friends. See, I think what's missing in a lot of what we've been taught about social justice, just even growing up, but many of you who are millennials, just growing up in a world where social justice was so important, we have, we have, we leave this out, we forget that we've actually been more profoundly shaped and formed towards consumerism and materialism. So though we might have this social justice bend toward us, you've actually been more habituated towards consumerism and materialism. And not only does this undermine the justice you so desire, and we so desire, but if not checked, our propensity towards consumerism will never allow us to bring about this sustained change that we seek in the world. We'll get in the way of ourselves. So I wish again to speak on justice at our church. And this subject has make me, made me kind of unpopular as a pastor here in San Francisco. Whenever I teach on this subject, I have people leave our church with an email saying that I've gone too far and now I've become way too liberal for them. They thought we were a biblical church or whatever. And then there are those emails I get inevitably that think that we have not gone far enough, that we need to go further in our pursuit of all things justice. And we have not gone far enough. But with both fear and humility, I take it as one of my prophetic roles as a pastor teacher to not just tell you what you want to hear or what you always agree with. So I just want to start here. What is biblical justice? I'll start. I want to start there. Let's just start there because I think that's a really good place to start. What I mean by biblical is what's the sort of justice we find in the Bible? Okay. The word for justice in the Old Testament is the word mishpat. Mishpat. This word is often coupled with the word sadaka. So in Hebrew, sadaka and mishpat are words that are coupled together to talk about what justice is. They are translated in English righteousness and justice, and they're, they're seen coupled together often, a lot of times in the Bible. Example, probably one of the penultimate texts in the Old Testament, Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. I mean, this is a really good question. What does God deem good? What does God want from humanity? And what does the Lord require of humanity? And here it is. To act justly and to love mercy. Sarka and Mishpat. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Righteousness and justice. This is what God wants. Righteousness and justice. Isaiah 6, 7. Learn to do right, seek justice. Sarka, Mishpat. Here's the words again. Here's how, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. These are the two biggest words in the Old Testament. 
Mishpat is used over 200 times in the Old Testament alone. This couplet is what we would call a hendiatus. It's a rhetorical device. When they're used together, they're more potent. They actually take on a meaning when they come together of their own, like law and order or health and safety, that sort of thing. These words are very important to the people of God. The roots of these, this, the coupling of these words go back to the very roots of Israel. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 18, what you can argue is the birth of Israel through Abraham, the calling of Abraham. This is the Abrahamic promise. Um, at this point in the story, Abraham doesn't have children, but he will once have, uh, soon have a nation. Well, not soon, a few hundred years, a, a nation. And though he doesn't have land, he will, want, he will soon have land. Genesis 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, which is ironic because he is an old man who's barren. His, his, him and his wife can't have children but he will have a great nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him. So that, so that is such an important part of this paragraph. Why did God choose Abraham? So that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How do you keep the way of the Lord? By sadaqah and mishpat. By doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. There's a little condition there. You see that? I'm going to call you and bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Here's how you're going to do it. You're going to teach your family and your children how to do righteousness and justice. That's how it will happen. And blessing will flow through you and your family and all the earth. But you have, you have to do this. Here, God, by his grace, chooses Abraham and makes a remarkable affirmation of the creation of a community of righteousness and justice. God is creating a community of righteousness and justice. And the, this is like the, uh, the immediate like sort of purpose for the election of Abraham. Why did God choose Abraham? Because I'm going to make you into a community of righteousness and justice. That's why. I saved you from something, and I saved you to something. That's the point. I saved you to be righteous and just, to act righteously and to act justly. Now, the most basic meaning of the word mishpat, or justice, is to treat people equitably. So in Leviticus, God warns people to have the same mishpat for the refugee and foreigner as for the person who looks just like you. Have the same mishpat. Have the same justice. Justice here means to treat outsiders like you would treat insiders. However, it's taken even further in the Old Testament as the Old Testament un unfolds and the prophets begin to speak. See, whenever the idea of mishpat or justice comes up throughout the Old Testament, it's, con it's continually connected to how society treats the most vulnerable in that society. So mishpat is directed towards how are you treating the most vulnerable. For example, look at the reading that we just did from Isaiah chapter 6. It says to do sadaqah and mishpat, to do righteousness and justice. How? Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. See, the reason why these people groups come up all the time in prophetic literature when describing how to do justice is because these were the groups in ancient Israel that had no social power. They were the most vulnerable to starvation, to invasion, or even to subtle social unrest. Let's say, for example, if a global pandemic happened, these people would be the most vulnerable. Have we not seen that in this pandemic? Who are the most vulnerable to our pandemic? 
it was usually oppressed people groups or underprivileged people groups or unserved people groups in our nation. They were, at, in Israel's time, the most vulnerable to this. And the way God judged a society according to his mishpat or his justice was the way any given society treated the most vulnerable people groups or said another way. The quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in a society fared while you were alive. This is so important. In prophetic literature, the way that your, the quality of your faith was judged was how are the most vulnerable people groups treated in your society? That's how God judged your quality of faith. To neglect the vulnerable was an act of injustice according to God. So to do justice and to live righteously were actually the same thing. Live righteously, do justice were the same. This is why the prophets cried out when people thought they were living righteously, they weren't doing justice and they cried out. This is exactly what Jesus did in his ministry as well. Yet Pharisees who all got the letter of the law down and they thought they were doing righteous, but Jesus says, you're not doing justice, so therefore you're not righteous. This is, this is the cry of the prophets in, throughout the scripture, Jesus being the prophet, right? Now, th what I mean by this, the, the same thing, righteous and just are the same thing. If I brought this down to our language, it means this, living the way of Jesus or following the way of Jesus or practicing the way of Jesus will always push us towards the most vulnerable people in our society. If we're truly, when I say truly, if we're really taking seriously the teachings and the way of Jesus, that will inevitably push us to the most vulnerable in our society. It must do that. If our discipleship to Jesus is doing what it's supposed to, it will push us to the most vulnerable. This is why the words righteousness and justice, sadaka and mishpat, are coupled together in the Bible. Let me put a finer point on this by quoting the scholar Bruce Walkie. He says, righteousness is a pattern of life, or we can say rule of life because that's what we're saying, right? Righteousness is a pattern of life, not merely specific acts, specific acts. It means you don't just do this on the weekends. This is a way of living. What is at stake is personhood, not merely performance, disposition rather than mere deeds, character behind and beyond conduct. The kind of life and behavior has a religious dimension as well as an ethical one. Righteousness refers to the moral quality that establishes right order, and justice refers to the moral quality that restores that order when it's disturbed. Justice, think of justice as intervening or advocacy or allyship. It's when you step in when justice is disturbed Right justice is put it, the righteous putting themselves in there to intervene or putting themselves in there as an advocate or putting themselves in there as an ally. And then he says this, put the, the last part of this quote on the screen. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. That that is probably the best summation of what Sadaqah and Mishpat are. That the righteous will disadvantage themselves to do justice in the community. 
What Waki is saying, saying is that for followers of Jesus, followers of the way, he calls it followers of righteousness, when they see in their society something that is out of order, that is unjust, followers of Jesus will, will seek to bring about that order, to bring about right order as a pattern of life. And then he has the best definition of what that will feel like in our bodies when we live that way. We will feel like we're disadvantaged. It'll feel like, like leveraging our advantage or leveraging our money or resources or our time. It'll feel like a disadvantage so that other people are brought to an advantage. That's what it'll feel like for us. Now, inevitably, the question will come up and I imagine in our church, our size and our, with our diversity, what kind of justice? Who is the most vulnerable in our society? I mean, with our church, with all the different perspectives, I would imagine there's a lot of different answers to this question. So this question some people will immediately think of the, our unhoused population in San Francisco. Others will think and look at racial inequality Others might even lay over this conversation the intersectionality paradigm and say that those furthest away from straight, white, cis, male are the most oppressed and marginalized. I'd like to give you two paradigms that might help you figure out where to begin to do justice so that this doesn't become an argument in your community group, because that would be really bad. <laughs> Let me just give you two paradigms, two biblical paradigms or Jesus taught paradigms for how to start thinking about how to begin to do justice, how to start to make this your pattern of life. The first one would be the paradigm of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Most of you are familiar with this parable. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to assume that a lot of you know what this is. Even if you're new to the church, you're like, oh, the Good Samaritan. I kind of know what that story is. In this parable, Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor? that I'm to show love by disadvantaging myself. Who is that person? And the answer is, whoever is in your path who needs your help. That's the answer. Who's in your path that needs your help? So the first paradigm is just start with who's in front of you. Who do you run into on the street? Who do you live by? Who might you be in relationship with already who is vulnerable and needs your relational help? Now, I say relational because if they are close to you, they need you to show them love, not just through deeds, but through relationship. Think Jesus. Jesus, God himself, shows up as himself, stripped of all his wealth and glory and riches and even power and becomes a poor human, poor, he's literally poor, to be near us. This is the incarnational model. Like we have, when we serve, we have to serve with our lives. And so start with whoever's in front of you. If you go on walks, who are the people that you run into on your walks? Start there. Who do you live by in your street or in your apartment building? Start there. Just apply that principle. Start there. The second paradigm is something Jesus said in Matthew 25. So the first one's Luke 10, parable of the Good Samaritan. The second one is a parable Jesus shared in, Luke, in Matthew 25. Now, traditionally, it's called the parable of the sheep and the goats, but I don't know if it's even a parable. I, might, I think it's what happened when Jesus comes back. Jesus will essentially divide the room up on two sides when he returns, he says. His right and his left, the sheep and the goats. 
And the group on his right, he says this. Come, you who are blessed of my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer them, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Amen. And then Jesus turns to those on his left and says this, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't know if that gets any worse. <laughs> for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, or for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and eating clothes or sick and in prison? And he will reply, surely I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, this is a very, very obviously important text when we're trying to get to the heart of Jesus when it comes to justice and generosity. See, Jesus inherited a tradition that emphasized outreach and action to the poor as a non-negotiable demand as a faithful follower of God. This is non-negotiable. This is why when Jesus gave his famous magnum opus called the Sermon on the Mount, he taught three non-negotiable practices for following him. Three. So we have like seven or eight or whatever, but he had three. So, I mean, we're not expanding on Jesus, but kind of, right? He had three. He said, when you fast, when you pray, and when you, what? Give to the poor. Three non-negotiables. And when you fast, fast like this. And when you pray, pray like this. And when you give, when he actually says, when you practice your righteousness, your sadaqah and mishpat. When you practice your sadaqah and mishpat, don't bang the gong or clang the cymbals or announce that you're giving. Give quietly. Give to those important. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We'll get to that in a second. The idea is taken from Israel's prophets that our life with God was not only to be about private prayer and integrity, but also how we stand with the poor. I mean, not to put too sharp a point on it, but you can make the case that throughout the Bible, God favors the poor. And Jesus took it even further than that. This is where it gets kind of crazy. Jesus added the notion that God not, God not only favors the poor, but God is in the poor. That's what Jesus was saying. What you did to them, you did to me. God is in the poor. That when we meet God, we meet God in the poor, and how we treat the poor is how we treat God. It's almost as if Jesus is saying that nobody will get into eternal life with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth without a letter of reference from the poor. Now, this is where a lot of us get stuck because, I mean, most of us are at this point are just like completely either elated, like, yes, finally, we're saying this. I, this is like my life heartbeat, serving the poor. And some of you guys are just deflated going, I don't think I'm going to heaven now. 
Like, is there an altar call at the end of this or something? Because I don't think I'm getting in anymore. This is where a lot of us get stuck. We're smart enough to know that there are systemic issues at play that keep people in poverty and that keep people vulnerable. And you would be right. There are. But you would be wrong in letting that get in the way of you starting here in your service to the poor and vulnerable. I've been there. I've been so paralyzed by, but what's the systemic issue that's keeping people homeless and houseless? But what's the systemic issue behind all the racism? What's the systemic issue about behind this and that and this and this and trying to dismantle that, that it froze me from literally just doing, starting with what Jesus said. Notice that Jesus did not say, I was sick and you healed me. Or I was in prison and you liberated me. Or I was a stranger and then you bought me a house. <laughs> What's actually happening here is very basic. Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you gave me an article of clothing. I was thirsty and you gave me a glass of water. It's very basic. There's small ministries of mercy where you personally and relationally get involved with those in need. But someone will say, there's a power dynamic that happens when you do that. When you serve the poor that way, there's a power dynamic of like, I serve you and you need me and I'm, I'm the one with power, so I'm here serving you like I'm some sort of demigod or something like that. And this is, this is true. There is that. There's some of that. And that can be dangerous. But is there a practice from the way of Jesus that would help turn our lives towards the poor and the vulnerable in ways that don't continue the cycle of systemic injustices? And there is. It's called generosity and simplicity. This is why those people like Mother Teresa vow a life of poverty when they serve the poor. Now, that for most of us, we won't get that extreme. But the dangerous alchemy is when we serve, but we don't change the way we live. That's where it gets dangerous, where we keep getting richer and richer and buying more and more stuff and then serving. That disconnect is the dangerous alchemy of all. We must choose the way of generosity and begin to live in the way of simplicity. Now, there's a lot we're going to say more about this in the future. This is very cursory. But many of us grew up in a culture of consumerism and materialism, and we don't see the connection between our desire for justice and our desire for more stuff. Our desire for more furniture, more shoes, more vacations, more gadgets, literally chokes out our desire for generosity and justice for the poor. 1 Timothy 6.10. I told you we'd get here. We're finally here. Here it is. Look. We're almost done, though. So you're like, oh my gosh, we're just starting the sermon. <laughs> For the love of money is the, roots of, root of, the root of all kinds of evil. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say love of money is all evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wandered from the faith is what I want you to zero in on. The love of money has had people wander from the faith. Now, don't think of that as they wandered from believing in Jesus or even wandered from going to church. That happens. It's kind of rare, but it does happen. 
wander from the faith. This is like, and Paul and James writing, remember, there's a huge interplay between faith and works, right? Paul and Romans, James and his, James. Faith, is it faith, is it works that say it's faith and work, and there's this interplay between faith and work. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Faith and works are together. They both play a part. If you believe in faith, what you do in your life, your works will show it. That's the interplay. Okay, so wandering from the faith here has to do with wandering from the way or the practices of Jesus, of following Jesus in the disciplines of like walking in Jesus's way. There will not be many people who wander from Jesus altogether or like wander from like Christian faith, but there are some. But money is way more insidious than that. And I think there's a worse thing that can happen where we can be so concerned about money and making it and wanting it and buying what we, and buying what we want to buy that we ignore the basic requirement of following Jesus to be generous to the poor to limit our spending, to limit our lifestyles, to limit what we even like call ours for the sake of the poor. This is rejecting the way of Jesus or this is wandering from the faith. This is a kind of faith that is unrecognizable to the way of Jesus. It's not like not, but I I believe all the core tenets. I, I still like go to church every Sunday. You've wandered from what Jesus calls basic Christianity. He didn't say that, but it's basic, like following the way of Jesus by being generous with your life and your stuff to help and serve the poor. See, I think the dangerous alchemy is continuing to make and amass more and more and spending more and more on ourselves without limiting that to go, we then, we are going to limit that so that we could uh, make ourselves like almost even a lower class to serve the poor so we can be more um, identifiable with the poor. This is hard. This is a hard teaching, and I understand that. This is hard. This, this will take probably years to get there. But I think this is, this is the call. This is like in front of us. This is what we'll stand before God. And I think, I mean, I don't want you to be like, I never heard that. My pastor never told me about the sheep and the goats. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> Verse 17, command those who are rich. Okay, so I want to get to this part because I think this is important. Right here, Paul is, and you can leave that on the screen, Paul was writing to Timothy as a pastor of his congregation. So Paul saying, Timothy, as you pastor your church, tell the people in your church who are rich in this present world. And I always taken, I've taken 1 Timothy very personally. Like, I'm, I need to be doing this to our church. And so I'm going to tell you, those who are rich in this present world, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God, who richly provides for you with everything for your enjoyment. Command, I want to command you to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, you will lay up for yourselves treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that you may lay hold of life that is truly life. I want to say this. You are rich. By all standards, living in the bay, in, in, in the Bay Area in America, you are globally rich and you are nationally rich. Some of you are even Bay Area rich, which is beyond, 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 beyond. 
so you're rich. This is for everyone. Don't let arrogance get the best of you. Don't believe that because you have money, you have more power. Don't believe that. It's actually a social construct that's true as it pertains to our world system, but it's not true in God's economy. So don't believe it. Instead, be rich in your good deeds. Be generous and willing to share what you have in your home or in your bank account or in your connections or in your time. You brought nothing in this world and you're going to take nothing with it when you leave this life. And you won't even get into heaven, this is Jesus' words, not mine, without a letter of reference from the poor. So get involved personally with the plight of the poor. This is why you must invest in heaven. Lay up your treasure there. And for those who think, dang, I'm so glad he's not talking about me. I work at a nonprofit. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to all of us. We are all, if we even live around here, we are all rich. But me, but me talking directly at you won't change your heart. It might change your behavior for a week. And you might change the way you see the poor this week, but it won't change your heart. Our hearts have to be changed. For our hearts to be changed around this, we have to look to Jesus. We have to see Jesus, who not only identifies with the poor, but identified with the poor as he became the one who was thirsty, naked, and imprisoned on the cross. When we see how far Jesus was willing to go to identify with us in our spiritual poverty, in our emotional thirst, in our systemic sins. He deserved riches and glory, but got ignored and got crushed. And he willingly, he willingly did that for us, to open our eyes so that we can see how much we are loved, how much we are provided for, how much we really are in the care of God who wouldn't even withhold his only son from us. The most famous Bible verse of all time is, for God so loved the world that he gave. Only when we experience the generosity of God himself in our own lives do we have the heart to become generous like God was generous to us. Only when you've experienced the generosity of God. So how do we pr begin to practice this? And this is where I'll close. How do we begin to even practice this, this bit of generosity? Now, a lot of us come from different places. Some of you grew up in a Christian home where your family taught you about money and taught you about tithing and taught you about giving and, and living off less so you can give more. And that's beautiful. Others of us, like myself, have a lot of ground to cover. I didn't grow up like that at all. I grew up like semi Poor, not poor, but semi, like lower middle class to where um, food was placed on layaway a lot of times for our family. And I remember that very distinctively going to this one store in Bakersfield, getting food on a tab, buying groceries on a tab. And money for us was different. It was like when you have it, spend it because you never know if it's going to come back again. So just spend it, spend it all. Surround yourself with good stuff because you don't know if that... You're going to have to file bankruptcy, bankruptcy like we did and lose it all. You just don't know. So I have a lot of ground to cover. And Ashley and I both grew up very similarly. We have a lot of ground to cover with our daughter, Juniper. For some of, some of us, we're in all different places. And this hits us, generosity hits us in different places. We talk about money. We would much rather talk about our sex life with people than our bank accounts, right? That's like, 
We would much rather talk about that kind of stuff than money. Money is the last thing we talk about. Like we're very intimate with somebody, we might share with them how, how much we spent on that thing. But other than that, you kind of don't really talk about money. It's like the, the only taboo thing we have in our society left. But how do we begin to practice this? I want to take a page out of the village at home that we've been doing. Shout out to all the village um, volunteers and the village workers and all that stuff. Shout out. So we've been doing this packet at home. They gave it to us. It's like 10 weeks of studies that we do a village at home with your, with your children. And so we do it every Sabbath for family devotionals. And yesterday we were doing the family devotions and the lesson asked us to put together a family vision, to take time together as a family to write what kind of values are most meaningful and to identify ways your family can live into these values daily, monthly, and annually. This is beautiful. It's led to some really great conversation in our family. How about we all start right here? either as a family or as a house of roommates or a community group or even just a personal one, take some time to think and reflect and write what it would look like to start valuing generosity as a family. What would it look like to start valuing generosity as a community or as a person? How can you limit your spending? Set an income cap. Give away the rest. Start to tithe and also give offerings. Get creative on how you serve the poor relationally. Allow that to open your eyes that you can get more involved with systemic side of injustices. Start there and let it open your eyes to the systemic parts of our injustices that go on in our city. Dale, our executive director, I was at his house enjoying some of his very famous teriyaki barbecue recently, and we were just chatting, and I was asking him how he set his family values. And he said, he told me how he got them, him and his family got their family values when they had their daughter Anna, and he said, one of our main family values is generosity. And he said, the way we say it in our house is this, and we raised our daughter to think this and believe this, and this is a part of the DNA of our family. He said, one of our three main values as a family is always to be generous. There will be times when we will, be, we will intentionally choose not to buy things or spend money on things to give ourselves a chance to live this value out consistently. He said over and over again when they're raising their daughter, like, we're not doing this so that we can be generous. What does it look like for you and your house or your family or whatever to go, I'm, we'll limit what we buy so that we can be generous? See, in Matthew 6, when Jesus talks about the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount about being generous, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. It's always a, that's a, such a peculiar phrase. My daughter, Juniper, is getting to the age where she's wearing shoes that have, you have to tie them now. And it's hard to tie a baby's shoe, a kid's shoes, like really small shoelaces. Yesterday, we were all on a walk, and she has these little, little Chuck Taylors, and they kept on coming untied. It's like, Junie, stop, your shoe's untied. I'm like down, I'm like, oh, I'm trying to hurry up and like tie her shoe. And I'm thinking, how do I teach her how to tie it? I know there's ways to do it, but if I was to explain that, what is my right hand doing? What is my left hand doing? I actually have no idea. What is my right? If, if I tried to tell you right now, my right hand grabs and then pull, I don't, it's like my left hand doesn't know what my right hand's doing. It's so automatic, it's just a part of me. What Jesus means by saying, when you give generously, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. He's like, do it so automatically that you don't even know you're doing it. You're self-aware, but you're not self-absorbed. There's some people that give like, I just gave money to the poor. I'm crushing it today. You're self-absorbed. You think about it before you do it. Should I give money to this person? Do they deserve money? What are they going to do with this money? I don't know. You're self-absorbed. When your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing, it's like tying your shoe. Your shoe's untied. You've been down. Boom. Done. 
Like, you don't go, good job. <laughs> it's just automatic. Jesus wants us to be so generous that it becomes like that. We don't have to bang a cymbal or a gong or announce it. It's just, oh, like, oh, yeah, automatic. It's so automatic. This is, this is the hope of getting this discipline so deeply woven into our being. I've, I've been around people. Actually, I'm the product of people being insanely generous, bringing me in, offering me a place in their family, offering me a place uh, thinking of the person who led me to Christ in Bakersfield, thinking of the person who brought me in in CARP, thinking of Tarek who moved up here, and the thing that stunned me the most about Tarek is his generosity. Yeah. Like, generous. I, I'm only here because of generous people. And I want to become like that. And I want our church to become so generous that we become generous without even being self-aware. Self-absorbed, I should say. We, we'll be aware, but we're not self-absorbed, but we think we're amazing. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to start with this gratitude. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your generosity toward us. Thank you for making this world so well that we can be, we can have nothing and still enjoy a sunrise and a sunset, the sea breeze coming off the ocean, the, the dew of grass in the morning. Like we can just, your beauty, the thing that we actually spend a lot of money to go and visit, things like that are just free. They're literally just free. Just go outside. Some of the greatest things, like love, is free. Thank you for your generosity that you've made probably the most important and greatest things in life free. And these petty little things that we hoard onto, things like our stocks and um, our homes and uh, our bank accounts and our 401ks or whatever. Help us to be a little bit more generous with that, God. It's all from you. We're not taking it with us. As Solomon said, we might have a chance to leave it behind, but who knows what the next generation is going to do with our wealth. They might squander it and use it for things that are wicked. We have no idea. We have no control because we don't take it with us, God. But Lord, if we invest in the kingdom of heaven and our, our money, our time, all our treasure goes there, well, that's eternal. That's forever. That's what we celebrate on Easter last week, God, was that the things that we store there the things that we do in faith and in good deeds will live on in the new heavens and the new earth. They'll be building in this new kingdom, this new city whose foundation is God. Give us this eternal hope, God. Make us wise and good stewards of what you've entrusted us. If we're truly stewards of your stuff, you're a generous God, so therefore we will too be generous if we're good stewards. Make us that way, Lord. Change our hearts. Show us what you've done by delivering us from our sin. I can't take away the sting of that teaching in Matthew 25. I know that we're saved by grace. And I know that's true as well. That you want us, you desire us to find you in the eyes of the poor, of the naked, 
of the unhoused, of the thirsty, of the imprisoned, of the ill. Move us towards ministries of mercy that way. In Jesus' name, amen.